You're listening to the Gimme 5 Podcast, Episode 50, Side B, the interview with Lost Boys' Tim Capello. I am. Okay, sorry. <laughs> that didn't take long. That only took 16 seconds. <laughs> Already off Jimmy, the rails. Jimmy is, that, is, Jimmy, is that a record for you, personal record? No, actually, it's been much sooner. <laughs> We've had it at the two-second mark. <laughs> Already <laughs> off the rails. That was my fault. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> All right. Guys, we are joined by none other than Tim Capello himself. The unforgettable and original sexy sax man and beach performer from the movie The Lost Boys. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure. And it was beach star performer. What was it? Beach star. Star, beach, something like that. I, I, I There were two things I couldn't get. Three things I couldn't get. They spelled my name wrong on the album. My name is Timmy. And I, they never asked me what I wanted to do. Then, then I'm riding down Sunset Boulevard to t- the old Tower Records in 1987, and I see on this huge billboard when it should have been one of the happiest days of my life. Everybody that I know calls me Timmy. My family, my friends, my wife, everybody calls me Timmy. So Tina and Tina always listed me as Timmy. She always put me like that on the record because that's what she called me too. Anybody knows me for two seconds, they know I'm not like a Sergeant Tim Capella. <laughs> so, so I go down and I see my name, Tim, and one P instead of two. I'm like, oh, I know this happened to Bob Marley. He was only 16. I'm 35. I can't take this. And so I, I, and it's the, it's really as much time as I spent with Tina. It was 15 years. As many Mm -hmm. people as I played with that were really popular at the time, all of that just went away. And that little two hours that I spent recording that thing up in Santa Cruz is the only thing that's hanging on. So I am now for the rest of my life, Tim. And that's just the way it goes. That's what um, Because of a billboard. Because, you know, because of an album jacket where they didn't bother to ask me what my name was. I was curious as to why it was listed as Tim on Spotify. Because I, I have to be Tim now. I gotcha. Because, because Timmy is just anybody that knows me. And I guess it happens to people, you know, it just happens to people. So if that was, you know, the, the music uh, executive music producer or the guy who pro- like executive music produced that record, which I think was Joel Sill, I'm not sure, but he was a friend of mine and maybe he just made the decision, you know, um, but he didn't, why he didn't spell my name. Your introduction to me was the mm-hmm. opening moments of, of course, The Lost Boys. So of yeah. course they did the the people are strange sequence and they showed that and I, when I, when that movie first came out I think I was like ten and I 
Oh, thanks mm. a lot. I know, I know. I won't say yeah. how old I was. Um, Oh, I, I was born. I was I born. Was, I think the year, based on some of the research and stuff I've been doing, based on the year that you started um, performing live. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I was I was thirty two or wow. thirty three when we, so it was thirty one years ago. And, uh, and <laughs> here we are. Um, and you guys are lucky I can actually still speak with all the hard rock singing I've been doing all that time. Uh, I, yeah, it was really fun, and I hope everybody comes out to my concert. Uh, oh, we're we're going to cover some no. of that stuff because the vocals on we the album are great. Oh, cool. Thank you so much. A lot of your singing. I agree. Vocal stand-up. So, yeah, like I was saying, the, the, when I first saw that opening, I was very much under the impression, because you know, I, was, I was 10 and dumb, that they were kind of hinting that everyone was a, was a vampire. So in my mind, you were you were part of the whole vampire gang when I first saw that. But in subsequent viewings, you have become you know beach performer as as we put. Yeah, that's right. And but have you seen the comics? Uh, I actually oh. have a question about that. I do. So you weren't the only one. You, you weren't the only one at all because um, Vertigo. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess it was last year for the thirtieth anniversary issued a six comic set of the lost boys and i was on the cover twice i was in that movie for 12 seconds and i guess it's just leave them wanting a little more because it's you know when when i first met Corey feldman which was just really recently at a at a convention we were out together he was like oh he said he said i hate you you're, and uh-huh. he was laughing, but he was saying, I hate you. I, I, was, I was like one of the stars of that movie. And every time I meet somebody, they just, the first thing they say is, what's that muscle saxophone guy really like? Is he, he really weird? And, and <laughs> he said, dude, I want to talk about me. I don't want to talk about him. That's funny. So he was all over me about that. That's really funny. <laughs> you know, but, but it was so, so little time. And like I tell you, it you know, you guys deal with film too. A little bit. Um, we're we're more uh, broadcast so you know design, that. so um, 3D graphics, the fly across sure. the screen, um, some some show production okay. design. So. Mm-hmm. so it's not quite the same. But when you're on a film set, the one thing you can count on is it's just gonna be ten times longer than they told you mm-hmm. it was. Right? You're not gonna make the flight they told you you were. You're gonna be filming in the darkness until the sun comes up. And that's just the way it goes. We did one take for the band. We might've done one take. Then they moved the cameras a little bit to do the whole star Michael thing where we were in the background. Mm-hmm. Two takes, and, and we were back in Corey Hames room having a party in two hours. Wow. It was, it wasn't even 11 o'clock. <laughs> wow. I've never experienced anything like that. And then recording the song, which I was already knew the song. I mean, mm-hmm. in words, I, I, I was already a big fan of The Call, and I had that CD. So, and it was my favorite album off the CD. Uh. Um, so I already knew the thing. So when I stepped in, and it was an old friend of mine that I had toured with a guy named Eric Carmen oh, yeah. with. Uh, you know, Eric yeah, Carmen. Right, hungry eyes and all by myself and all that stuff. Never going to fall in love again. So I toured, his name is Richie Zito, and he produced the track. And like, 
The track was done again. Nobody asked me what key I wanted to sing it in. Nobody asked me anything. They, I mean, Richie and I knew each other, so he knew I didn't have as high a voice as Michael Bean. I mean, he's got this really incredibly high voice. So he knew he had to take it down, but he really didn't even call me and say like, well, where do you want it? And then, and the track was all done. So I go in and record the track and because I knew it and because he wasn't expecting a track that day, he just wanted a, a rough vocal. I actually sang it through like a hundred dollars, sure 57 sitting in the control room on a chair and no headphones on. It was actually coming through the main speakers, which I don't know whoever does that. I, have you ever heard of oh, anybody really? doing that? Sing, like singing what? Of course, they're always playing guitar to that because it's going straight into the board. There's no leakage. But they literally had this blasting at me. Jeez. Just singing along with no headphones. And I never heard from them again. And then that was it. And, 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 then I, and then I did a more traditional thing with the horn where I was like, they put headphones on me, put me in a booth. And then I would play something and say, mm, I could do a little better than that. And that maybe took a little more than the vocal, a little more time in the vocal, figuring out, you know, there was never any answers to any of these lines. Thank the Lord that there were these big holes in the chorus where I could put some saxophone and then some room for uh, soloing. I had maybe three hours. Like I went into Joel, um, Joel Sill, who's a music publisher and executive music producer. He was at Warner's at the time. So he sees me auditioning for the part, the Gary Busey part in Lethal Weapon. And I he goes to that. Premiere. Yeah. And, and believe it or not, in the parking lot was when I first heard, I still believe, a call. And I was actually late for the audition because I stayed in the car to listen to who it was so I could go buy it, the cassette. And... And so the whole thing had a lot of kismet going on. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to say there's anything spooky going on here, but there was a lot of kismet involved because Joel Sill then became my publisher and he just walked me right into Schumacher's office and my picture was on his wall. I had done a, wow. I had done a picture for um, Andy Warhol's interview magazine mm -hmm. and that picture was on his wall. So I was looking at him and then I was looking at me over him. And then, and then all he just said, he didn't say anything. He just said, you want to sing a song in a movie and play your horn? I said, yeah, of course I do. And he went, okay, we'll let you know when it happens. And then. That's incredible. And then, and then, you know, a friend of mine, Jim Cregan from Rod Stewart's band, we just sort of got together and tried to write a song for it. And they were very nice to let us do that. Um, and, and the, the, we were disappointed at the time because of the dough, but the best thing that ever happened to me in my entire life is that they rejected our song, you know, huh. because, because there was a song then that like people come up to me now, like, you know, at concerts and at so, and they just like, they just say like, can I give you a hug? Because your song at one point in my life, like really got me out of a bad time got me off drugs or saved my life. I was thinking of killing myself. And, and mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And then I just put it on and go to the gym and, and, and like, you know, get through it. And, and so, you know, it, it really is a, a spectacular song. It's a simple song, but, but it's a spectacularly deep song, you know? And, and the fact that I wasn't singing some piece of fluff, which quite frankly is what we wrote, 
um, you know, writing a song because somebody asks you to coming into your mind because of a situation. Oh, and, 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 you know, the deepest of situations, right. That, that was a Christian band and not, not a lot of people knew about it. They kind of kept it on the QT. And the other thing was that Joel asked them to do it. And I guess they, they just were a little shy about doing a vampire movie and they said, no. So, oh wow. so, you know, it's just like, you just, you just, you just go to every situation with all you've got. And so it was those Tina videos and MTV and, and, and joining her band at exactly the right time. And my friend who was like a heavy session musician, getting me the part, getting basically getting me the only audition because you know, they trusted him so much. If I had just gone in cold, I might not have got it. Because Tina didn't really like me very much. Oh, really? No, she never really liked me very much. But she was listening to to Roger Davies, who said, you know, we're going to have to hire a keyboard player and a percussion player and a saxophone player. We can save a lot of money and just get this kid. So she she agreed to that. You know, that made sense to her. But Mm. she, she told me many times, as soon as she saw me, she just... She just knew I was going to be trouble. And, 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 you know, I, I was in trouble. I thought she was trouble. <laughs> I, in, in leading up to the, this interview, I, man, I, I would have really thought otherwise. Because... I love, I love her. I love, I, I mean, I really, there are aspects, every single aspect, you know, she taught me so much to get off my stupid high horse conservatory and jazz training and start thinking about music in a human way and not what, you know, not what ninth you're flatting or five you're augmenting or what, whatever chord you're substituting for another chord so that you can be hip. Just, you know, like just, just, just play some music for some people, you know, and, 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 and try to affect them in the way that you would like to be affected. And so once I learned what her language was, you know, I have the utmost, and I mean just 100% respect for her as an artist, but you know, she was tough. <laughs> she, was, she was, you know what I mean? Like I, after after being with Peter Gabriel, who was just like the nicest man on the planet. And like, mm-hmm. he would sit down with me and like have conversations. What are you into? What do you like? Um, how's your, how's your, how's, How's, you know, the intro to Lamb Lies Down on Broadway? How, how's that coming? You know, uh, oh, um, let me call, uh, you know, Tony and ask if he, if we can find out what that little thing is. And, and he was just so like a, a, a peer. And then when I played with Carly Simon or Billy Crystal or Eric Carmen, these people were all like, they, 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 they positioned themselves to us all as a peer. You can come to me with anything. You can let's hang out. You know what I mean? Even Carly. I mean, that's crazy, right? This is this is an heiress. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And and she yeah. just sit down on the bus, come over, and you know, rode with everybody, and just like said hi. And then when the tour, when her uh, stage fright took over, we had to cancel the tour. Big, long, three-page handwritten letter to every single one of us. I mean, that was, that was what I was used to. And Billy Crystal and I were really good friends. Uh, it was just he and I in his car. You know, I'd drive him down to West Virginia or something. And 
and him, you know, just me being under the seat with how funny this guy was. That had to be. Oh man. But that, oh, it was just, it was just amazing. You know, I was, I was responsible besides playing piano and saxophone. I, I was responsible for just jotting down notes. You know what I mean? In the car, anywhere, you know, with whatever. Just, like, riff on things? He just riffed and then he forgot it. So I would come last month. I had a kick say, of where I was just focusing on like old school comedy. Uh, yes. Who's your, who, who's your um, favorites? Well, my first introduction was the Eddie Murphy stuff of the eighties, but I love George Carlin, Eddie Murphy. Um, you know, it was, it was a lot of those like the late seventies, early eighties guys. I was like reading about their history sure. and stuff like that. And you know, Billy Crystal's name came up. Oh man. When I met him, I don't know. I was maybe 19. He was 26 or so. And he was opening for some like, you know, James Taylor ripoff guy that I was playing with uh, my first gig ever. And he, he just said, Hey, you, you want to come up and play some stuff with me like that? And it worked out well. And then I just was with him for five years till he, moved out to LA and I started playing with other people. So it was a, it was just, it was just a one of a kind experience. I love that man so much. And, and, and there was never anything about him that was mean spirited the way some comedians can be. We made most comedians, yeah. not a mean bone in his body. And, and like, you know, we'd be all be sitting around at a Chinese restaurant or something at four in the morning after gigs, you know, with a bunch of these comics who were popular at the time. And the testosterone was flying and the put downs were flying. And, and he was like, guys, guys, can we just tamp down the testicles here? <laughs> you know, he'd always just be the one to say that. And, and, and I remember like he, he was, he just used to be so encouraging. Like I actually wrote a couple of jokes for him that he used in his act. And that made me feel so good. Like he was so, he was so, um, accepting. You know I used what to I mean? love of, of the, um, that... the comic relief stuff he would do with Whoopi Goldberg and, and Robin Williams. Oh, gosh. He, they yep. were so positive. They were so positive and so different. Each mm-hmm. one of them. So you know what I mean? You wouldn't want to have Belzer on that. He just, I love him to death. He's always been the sweetest man behind the scenes. He's the sweetest man in the world, but, but positivity was what that was all about. And I thought it was. Have, have you read I'm Dying you know, Up Here? The book? I have not, but I've seen that it's a TV yeah, it's show. Yeah, TV now. show. I'm not sure if it'll last past season two, which just ended. Why? Why? But honestly, I think it's too smart for TV. It's one of those. It's like. Oh, so read So I read the, the, the interesting thing I think is that the TV show doesn't yeah. use the real people for the most part. But if you know the stories, oh. you know, like. That these are all real people? Like this is like sort of a, a document Yeah, like book. they use, instead of using Mitzi Shore, they use someone similar. And then there's someone that is kind of in the Richard Belzer. Oh, role. that's, no, you can't make that. Yeah. You can't make that. that, that and, can't. but it's still very good. I can't, I can't tell you. I remember, I remember being at like I don't know the improv or the comedy store or something like that. Richard Belzer had had a, a neck brace on, and he just kept walking around singing "It's Lonely at the Top." Wow, <laughs> guys were just know that you know name. they were just it was like you know they all had these incredible gardens. For, for mines, right? And and with all these snakes underneath mm-hmm. them. And 
They were, it was just the greatest thing to be involved in and have seen, you know, and the people that I really disliked because they just were so mean. insecure and mean, mm. you know, I would, yeah. I would love, I'm not going to do it, but I would love to name some names. <laughs> you don't have to. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I would love <laughs> to. But it's not nice. It's, it's probably in that book. Yeah. If you if you are interested in that, and if you want to like reminisce, possibly, I'm gonna. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's on the list. So, how did you get started in the music world? Did you start as a big rock fan? Um, but I have huge holes in my rock and roll knowledge. My mm-hmm. knowledge and my jazz knowledge mm-hmm. is much better. Um, like you know, songs, things that everybody knows, like you know the. Led Zeppelin library and they just know the whole thing backwards from the Hendrix library just never touched me I was a big at 14 I walked around I was a really really weird kid I walked around with a book about Dada really um, like the art movement by, by yeah I, I just got obsessed with Something happened. Like my father died when I was really young, right? And mm-hmm. just at a time when I was getting curious. So I, I went through all of his like collection and he, he had a pretty diverse collection. He had a lot of Charlie Parker, but he also had this piano player named Lenny Tristano. And and I don't know, for some reason I was just attracted to it. And when I put it on, it just blew my mind. It's at 11, I just said, this is it for me. And because he had done a song called Turkish Mambo and, and it was, it was just him playing pieces of, it sort of sounds a little Middle Eastern, but it's him playing pieces of varying lengths that all loop at different places. So maybe the bass is in five and the, and the middle part, or maybe two middle parts will be in seven and then there'll be something that's in three. And they're all just sort of wonderfully just crossing each other and stuff. And, and then he solos over that. And I don't know why, because no one had ever played me anything like that before, but I obviously I instantly knew that, that what that was, what he had done and 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 what it was and and what these time signatures were and and when they were crossing and how they lined up and and so he just became like my idol but then i was also into the guys that were really out there like ornette and sun ra go see them and, and stuff like that but i and of course my biggest idol was beefheart those two records he made a trout mask and lick my decals off were just to me. And, and the weird thing about it is that that music is constructed exactly the same way. It's just, it's just everybody's playing a different part in a different key and in in a different time signature. And then that you play it twice or you play it one and a half times and then you switch to the next one. And, and it was so complicated and it was loud. And those guitars were like, you know, they really were like, broken glass and it just i just wanted everybody in the world to know about that that existed and uh and uh it could clear a room in record time i have quite a few musician friends and audio technician friends and in some ways you sound like them because 
you're very focused on the how things are constructed and you mentioned it with the Tina Turner stuff. I still love that music. I still listen to that music, but uh, over the years and, and maybe mostly through listening to, to Tina uh, talk about music, um, you know, once I stopped stupidly rolling my eyes and actually listened to what she was saying and realized after a couple of albums that I did with her, um, where I would be in the studio with her all the time. And she um, was just always right. I mean, I mean, she's just a master of much more than being a great dancer and a great singer. And in, in, in 15 years of playing with her, I never, I mean, I never saw her miss a step or have one note that she sang that couldn't have been on a record. I mean, I mean, it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal talent, whether raining and sleeting in six inch heels. I just never saw it once. And I was looking, you know, cause <laughs> I, I really wanted to know, you know what I mean? Like she's human. I actually had a question on here kind of about when you were recording some of the songs on album, did they give you kind of pre-written music or they were like, were they just let you freestyle the various sax parts on what yes. on Tina's stuff? I always got the chance to, I always got the chance to just blow because I knew what she liked. I knew she liked that real, um, you know, honking tenor sound of, uh, you know, King Curtis. And she liked a little rasp. She liked you to blow a little too hard. She really, you know, Tina really, I mean, she, her argument is that the British people, and like the Stones and the people who took the blues and, and clapped it and stuff and, and just revered it so much. Um, she felt that they were, she had no use for black music. Hmm. Like, like, you know, the cliche was, whatever you do, don't play a James Brown chord, even one or you're out. You're out. So she had certain things. You couldn't play more than very simple chords, even though they might be on the record. So you'd go home and you'd study. What's that voicing? Oh, yeah, that's a that's two sets of fourths. You know, so that's some seconds. And she'd go, no, 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 no. That's not it. That's not it. It sounds like running water. It sounds like running water. I don't like that. So then you just go, okay. You play two notes. And she'd go, perfect. That's what I want on my stage. And And that was it. You know, like you just even stuff you had to change the records because she hated the sound sometimes even of her own records. She was she felt she was forced into it, but it gave her a tremendous amount of success. She put her faith in Roger Davies and he was a genius of a sort. You know, still is because he's managing Pink and doing a great job. I didn't know that. Yeah, he went like he's the guy that resurrects careers or makes women's careers. He's he's very he started out as a bass player in Australia, so he has a, a background. And, and, you know, played for played for some people. And his first um, person that he managed was Olivia Newton-John, and he made her famous. He's just a very, very talented man. He knows exactly what to do, and he knows the pulse. And he still does, and I don't. So, you know, he's older than I am. And he, uh, yeah, he's the, he's the guy behind Pink. You know, he's the guy, like, he just knows... Yeah, steer away from this and go to this. I mean, who would have ever told Tina Turner, let's get you some poppy kind of modern ballads that are 
that are just very commercial and, you know, like what's love got to do with it. She hated that song. Really? She hated that song. Wow. But, you know, it was just like when, right, who was, who wrote, um, because I used to love her, but it's all over now. That, that's, um, the guy who, um, Bobby Womack, right? So the Stones did it and he didn't even know who they were. And he was so pissed about that. And then when he got his first royalty check, he just went over to England. If there's any other songs you guys would like, I would really, I'm, I'm there for you guys. Want to write some stuff together? I'm here. And that's the way Tina was, you know, once it really set her up uh, as a major act, because, uh, you know, I've said this a million times, but I can only tell the truth. When I first joined her band, the album was out. Private Dancer was out. But she was still contracted to about six months of McDonald's conventions. So we were playing we were playing 20 minutes, 10 minutes at a McDonald's convention in between skits where people were dressed up like shakes and, you know, burgers and, uh, uh, you know, wow. that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, and the guy would go and, and she was so at such a low ebb then. That like squares who didn't, they'd just be reading from a thing. And now tiny team and, and she'd come on and nobody know who she was. They just stare at her, but she That's never cool. lost faith. She never lost faith. Yeah. Roger never lost faith. She would, she, she, she fulfilled her obligations to all of those and all of the tiny little casinos in Australia that we were booked for. And, um, and then boom, immediately it, it was strange. And then within six months, Biggest female star on the planet. Huh. Very strange. And, and you know, lovely, lovely, but uh, not without its hazards either. You know? <laughs> so. Uh, no, I'm, I'm su- surprised to hear that uh, she didn't exactly like you from, you know, the moment she saw you, she said, with the videos that I watched where you kind of take center stage and she is dancing around on on you <laughs> you know with basically well you know that's part of the act i mean yeah in other words most of those things i fought for every one of those ham that i am i <laughs> for every one of those tooth and nail and most of them she agreed to because she had a wardrobe change so she's got to get oh. somebody has to take over she somebody's got to do it and I guess she felt that both me and Kenny Moore, who was, you know, I don't claim to be in his league, but he, you know, he'd have one and then I'd have one and then he'd have one and then I'd have one. There really weren't. And then the dancers, of course, would have some. But I was lucky, you know, but you got to remember this. Both. Do you know who Kenny Moore is? I don't know. He was sort of sort Not of off the top of my head. Heavy set guy that always was to her to her uh, left playing a baby grand piano. He, he was sort of a, he came up with James Cleveland, right? So this was a major gospel talent from the time he was maybe, you know, a child prodigy of 12 or so. He was playing piano um, with James Cleveland and singing. So, and he had played with Aretha. He had played with Gladys Knight. He had played, you know, he played with a million people. And, but he loved Tina. He just loved her. And, um, and, you know, we lost him on the last tour. A uh, doctor had told him, apparently, that he had a tear in his heart and he shouldn't go on the road, but he loved it so much and he was such a sweet man. 
and he, uh, they said they found him. You know, you know when you see somebody sleeping in both of their hands or under their cheek, that's the way they found him totally peacefully. So when it's my time to go, I want to take the Kenny Moore exit, quite frankly. <laughs> so, but it was it was devastating. He had been with me mm-hmm. twenty five years. We played that night, and she. You know, call the meeting. Okay, who's getting his part? Who's getting this part? Who's getting this part? Who's going to cover this part? Who's going to do this part? Like, and I was like, the, his piano was on the stage. I couldn't, I was weeping. Oh, my heart is breaking. Really? Who's going to get this part? That's just the way it was, you know? That's just the way it was. It was not a personal situation. It was a, it was a juggernaut and a money monster. Mm-hmm. And now... You know, who's to say she was wrong? It was, it, she's so set up. You know what I mean? She, she, she got to retire kind of early. I'm glad I got, I'm glad I got out when I did, but she fired Kenny and I. If you'll notice, we were on the 1996 tour, but we weren't on the 1997 tour, even though I was on that record. She fired both of us. As a matter of fact, she didn't even fire us. She just didn't call us. Roger just didn't call hmm. us. Yeah. So that's really surprising. I mean, after after everything we had given to that, mm-hmm. um, her only response, I guess, was, "Well, look at all I've given to you, so shut up." And 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 literally, just like I, I guess I read in Rolling Stone or something that, that she was on the road. I was just waiting for the call. You know, like I said, I had played on the record. Even that was kind of tough. I think that she just she at a certain point at a certain point she said to me, and she was always very honest. She's like, you know. Too much trouble. I don't like you always with the spotlight. You're always jumping around. You're always, you know, you're always trying to steal a line. I don't, I don't really like that. And, um, you know, the other guys are just, they sit around, they chew gum and they play the parts and that's, that's it. And, and, and then she said to me, but, you know, everybody's been asking for you and Kenny and there's nothing I can do. So here you are. So I, I had always admired her honesty. I, you know, and it was funny because. After that experience, I just said, you know what? I don't want anything to do with bodybuilding. I don't want anything to do with any of this if this is where it's ultimately gotten. So I just sort of like stopped working out and grew a beard and and got into Jungian analysis and was just writing down my dreams all day and practicing and practicing maybe wanting to get into jazz and just do something totally different. And it was so funny because then she called us back and I was still pretty skinny. And, and then, and then when it came time and I said, you know what, in 1996, I said, I'm kind of in this. Why why don't I start picking up the weights again and everything? (laughs) It's in a crowd. It was in a crowded room of, of like, like, I don't know, maybe 65 or 75 people. And, and Roger was on the, Roger Davies was on the other side of the room. And, and I came in buffed and, and Tina yelled across the room, Hey, Roger, Timmy looks good again. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> you know, that's what I think about when I think about her, you know, A- admiration. Yeah. You know, but then again, it's sort of like, you know, Prince, right? Who used to, who used to, find people for invading his visual space. Like you had to be out of his range of sight. If he could see you, you made a mistake. So all these 
people, these geniuses, they have these quirks that are crazy. And, um, you know, she had her share. On the other hand, Mm -hmm. she could be so honest and say, like, you know, I really don't like you very much. But it's a good team. Just remember, don't be nice. Be the tough guy and you'll get by fine. Or she would say, I would say, Tina, you had a nose job. I never knew you had a nose job. And she'd say, I didn't really have a nose job. I didn't want one. I liked my nose. And if you look at old pictures of her, it sort of looks sort of Cherokee, her nose. It's it, it's bigger and it, and it's sort of almost Sicilian or, or a Cherokee nose. And and with a bigger with a bigger um, uh, bridge, and I said, mm-hmm. I didn't know you had a had a nose job. <laughs> that doesn't sound like you. And she said, you know, I really wish I loved my nose. I wish I had never done it. But Ike kept sticking lit cigarettes up my nose, Ugh. and I couldn't breathe, so I had to have everything chopped out. So I said, okay, while you're doing it, you know, at least make it look nice. Don't don't mess me up. Which you can, but they have Jesus there and chop out every. I mean, you know, so whatever, whatever gripes I have with her are so petty and stupid. Mm-hmm. So because that's what she, that's where she came from. But on the other hand, I could turn it around and say that's where she came from and that's where she stayed. So you mentioned some of these giant concerts that you got a chance to play. What is the largest crowd you ever got a chance to play in front of, and what is that like looking out in front of that many people? It it has a diminishing effect. Um, the biggest c- crowds that I ever played, because as I said, I got fired um, when she went to Brazil and uh, in Rio. And they said that that was one of the biggest crowds ever, maybe 150,000 or something like that. But um, we just used to play these festivals and it'd be Tina, Joe Cocker, Rod Stewart, Prince, just, just everybody on the bill was just crazy big star. I couldn't imagine being at one of those. And when you're on the stage, and most of the time you're playing, eh, you're playing kind of in the afternoon because it just goes all day, goes all night. Sometimes you're playing at night, sometimes you're playing in the day. And um, and it was just an endless sea of people, and so. Because you got these lights in your face, even in the afternoon, you really can't see very much. And uh, in terms of in terms of say being excited or maybe having a little bit of butterflies, a small place is always much more frightening to you because you can see everybody's face and they can see mm-hmm. single you they can hear and see every single note that's that you're doing. Right. You're like two feet away from the from the, the, you know, and and especially if they're all like after one of Tina's tours, I went I I wanted to go back and study. So I went to um, the uh, California Institute of the Arts. Okay, Yeah. You you ever heard of it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Walt Disney started it, I think, in the 40s. Cal Arts is a training ground for, you know, Pixar artists. Absolutely. uh, My. my cousin's wife is a uh, session bass player. She went there. Absolutely brilliant. It's, um, it's, so you've been there. I've not been to the campus. Never been to the campus. It, not yet. You know, it was just, it was so marvelous. They, they had, you could have Indonesian 
gamelan orchestra and then you'd go to African drumming and African dance and then you'd and then you'd be with Tootie Heath and and all these jazz greats. Um, I mean, it was crazy. Um, it was small and mm-hmm. it was very progressive. And there were guys that were like 18 or 19 who were just blowing rings around me. Mm-hmm. And they were just so brilliant. And their composing was so brilliant. And I just think, oh, God, <laughs> you're way out of your water here, you know. And, and mm-hmm. you were there for a couple. How many years did Two you? Years. Two okay. years. Yeah, I want, to, I want to get into the gunship thing. Have you, before your collaboration with Gunship, have you heard of the the synthwave movement? Were you into that at all before? Like 80s yes, futurism. That's a great way to put it. <laughs> I think we've just we've just uh, named <laughs> the genre right there. We can put yeah. that to bed right now. Well, you know, if you look at Gunship, that's exactly yes. what it is, right? That's okay. Yeah. These they go back to these crazy. I mean, I mean, they're so hardcore because I told them, I said, look, you know, sometimes if I'm traveling with stuff, it can be a real pain in the butt. So, like, rent me a sax, would you? And and they said, sure. We know how that is because we have to go around and play gigs in other countries. And we have the synthesizers that you're literally are like the old phone company in the 50s. Like they're plugging one thing into another chord. And there's mm-hmm. like a million chords. You ever seen those synths, mm-hmm. the original ones? Like yeah. Bach or something like that? Yeah, we have a um, Orlando synth group here. And I've I've went to a performance, Greg. I know yeah. you went to one. And it's Pass just like, boards. holy yeah. shit. Yep. Yeah, yep. and and Gunship, the guys guys from Gunship were are in a band called Fight Star, and they are right. big in the UK. So, yeah, but go on, they they rented a a sax and that's for you. More of a, that's more mm-hmm. of a rock yes. band, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, they're quite different than Gunship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got I got to get into them. I've I've gotten into a lot of the Gunship stuff, of course, and I've gotten into a lot of the Indiana stuff, of course. Oh, such good yep. but, you know because. That's just what I heard. I, I just thought it was one of the best tracks I ever heard. It was just, it was just to me. It was, you know, I'm an old man, right? I'm 63 years old. That's my music. So to me, they were just talking to me. It, you know, and I thought it was so funky. And some of those amazing synth bass lines and that whole idea of going double time in the choruses, and it's just such an incredible melody. I was just like, I was just like blown away totally. Now, was this another, we touched on this earlier about having kind of free reign over your part. Was, was it the same way with gunship? Did they say, okay, we have this part written for you or just go in? No. Nice. They just, you know, they just sent it to me over here in New York. Mm -hmm. I did it. They sent me a letter saying, this sounds really good. Would you just play the whole tune from beginning to end? Don't don't stop. As if there's no vocals or anything. Just wail. And Damn. when the second take, all I got back was a little note that said, holy shit. <laughs> Which is funny because that's pretty much what we said the first time we heard the song. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you how the first time I heard the song was yeah. Gunship was – they were doing this thing 
um, leading up to Friday the 13th, where they had a graphic of a moon that was covering the sun for every day on their countdown. They said something is coming. And have you seen the the picture that they put up where they had your name like on a headstone amongst yes, a I bunch did. Of other people? So we – okay, great. We recorded an episode where we speculated what it was mm-hmm. going to be. And I, I saw Timmy Capello on there and I'm like, okay, he was in The Lost Boys. Um, he's, you know – done all this you know other work of the what what does this mean and when i first saw the link pop up on their instagram i clicked on it without mm-hmm. reading gunship featuring timmy capello and indiana i did not yeah. see that oh wow. so so i just watched the video and there's this representation of you animated right I'm like, oh man, that's so cool. It's Lost Boys themed. Oh, they've got, you know, a, a great references. Yeah, right? they've got a Timmy Capello type character. And then Indiana comes on and says, let's fly. And it cuts to you with the blood raining down. And I lost my shit <laughs> because I had no idea that you were in it. They sprayed, they sprayed me with that stuff. And it was. <laughs> getting into the bell of my horn you know you just had to be a good sport because they were so sweet to me I, I was supposed to go to england and do it with them and i couldn't oh wow so they i don't know what if the video would have been that last part would have been any different if i had been able to make it but they were so sweet and to this day i'm sort of too embarrassed to ask them if you know, because everybody is separate. Indiana's separate. The drummer's mm-hmm. separate. The keyboard player, the guitar player, everybody's separate. And it probably wouldn't have been that way if I had been able to make it. So, um, so I am just um, so like they let me do it in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. So and you I could was, never, you can never tell you guys were in yeah, a I different mean, they, location. Really? I, I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you what it was like, you know, being around them, being there, filming that with them. But turns out you guys were not in the same spot. No, we weren't. And it was all my fault. But um, they were so nice and accommodating and and the sweetest people in the world and so understanding of, um, you know, just my situation that they I've just never been treated so, so so respectfully and so sweetly. So I am, uh, and you know, I, I, I guess the album's not out yet, but I uh, can't like wait to mid October. I believe. I think so. Is it? We, our research department is us frantically typing on our computer. <laughs> <laughs> they released a uh, call for reenacting scenes from movies from the eighties to be featured in their new video. <laughs> and I, I just thought of, the Lost Boys immediately. I think it's a great video. I think it's a oh, it's great beautiful. video. I think the thing about it is just you know the the and, and I know they got their fingers in everything. They're, they're yeah, they do. It's great video people, and they're smart enough to to farm out what they need to. But in terms of the vision, it's always that. And 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 like I said, they just said. Really nice plan. My my only objection is we need more. And then when I just gave them everything I had, and um, and you know was totally spent, 
that's when they really loved it. And that's so awesome. So thankful to that. You know, and, and I can't, you know, it's so funny because the Lost Boys was 31 years ago. And then I played with Tina for another maybe 10 years or 12 years. So 1999, I was really out of anything that you could call, you know, the real music business. I just, mm-hmm. I just made my living doing um, local gigs and session work and playing with my buddies in different bands and stuff like that. So I really abandoned it. You know what I mean? I really... I understand that. It was the last thing I was thinking about in my 50s and late 50s and stuff. And then this guy, uh, Eben Magar, who has a... a, um, a um, he has a... Um, a, a, a convention called Mad Monster Party. And he just spent the money to find out what my phone number is and just called me cold and pulled me back into it. And and if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't, you know, have really thought, oh, wow, maybe my musical life isn't over. You know, maybe I'm not just treading water. Not that I don't have a good time playing jazz, jazz mm-hmm. <coughs> with my friends. And not that it doesn't pay well. Sometimes it pays better than the stuff that's very, um, that everybody knows about. Um, but like I was, again, I was, I don't know what this is. I, I seem to think that it has something to do with, in terms of the people that are like making this go, that, that nobody really gave a shit. And I was kind of like a laughable character until I became their grandfather's age. Like when I was their father's age, 20 years after mm-hmm. it, nobody was calling, nobody was doing anything. But mm-hmm. now that I'm adding, you know, another 12 years or so, so that I'm much closer to what a lot of these people's grandfathers, you know, when I go out and play and I see people in their 20s and I just think, oh, my God, who would go look at who would go and 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 and, and you know, uh, uh, go in to hear their grandfather. It doesn't make any sense. I, I think. I, I have a connection to make there. Um, and I, the, the saxophone has become so prevalent in this, uh, retro futurism sure. or, you know, the synth wave. And, and I think you're a big reason for it. Um, because a lot of the people making this music are of, you know, kind of my age, my, you know, Greg's age. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of our being horror fans and I, I can tell you, I've never thought I would have listened to so much saxophone in my life, but I think a lot of our introduction was seeing you in the lost boys. And my personal reaction was like being however young I was the first time I saw it was holy shit. This guy makes the saxophone look so badass. <laughs> and, and I think I think you have a lot to do with that, honestly. Well, that's lovely to hear. I mean, I, I, in terms of guys in the eighties that were playing balls out rock and roll saxophone, there was Clarence, mm-hmm. right? There was Clarence, and then there was me, and then there was like the guy in Huey Lewis Rivera. News. That's not that's and, uh, and Mark Rivera. Yeah. So so there's there really aren't that many of us. That were doing that. I mean, every band in the eighties had to have a saxophone, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, so yeah. the motels had a saxophone. You know, it, it just everybody. But in terms of really, really, as I as I said, just like balls out, go go for it. 
um, you know, there, there weren't that many of us. And um, I think that's something that Synthwave, now I'm not really sure because I haven't heard enough of it. Are there a lot of people playing sort of careless whispers, like jazzy saxophone uh, and this stuff? There's a band called the Rough. Yeah, that's a, people keep and telling me about their it. Their second it's album, wait, no, sorry, their third album has a lot of saxophone. <clears throat> Does their, it? Their second album has some, yeah. but it's more of the the kind of passing uh-huh. car passing in the night type saxophone. I'm not sure what it's called, but like like a f- slight saxophone hits. But it's the songs are very built on saxophone for their third album, and it seems like it's going to be that way for the fourth mm. as well. Mm. Yeah. yeah, which is coming out soon. Uh, wow. one of their, their, one of the tracks that they just released recently, uh, actually they released the same day that Dark All Day came out. Ah. It's called, it's called Lost Boy. Oh, really? And for me, it was just this like cosmic, you know, connection that <laughs> I was like, oh, I, I, I put together weight. I'm not a conspiracy <laughs> theorist by any means, but I put, so I made so many connections there that probably shouldn't have been. Like but, one of those walls yeah. with like all the yeah, pictures I, on I, it and the string attaching it and stuff like a. Yeah. yeah, like True Detective. <laughs> Just like using red thread to connect pictures. <laughs> Where I'm going to jump in here with a question because you just released your first album, Blood on the Reed. And first of all, the mm-hmm. title of the album is that it all related to Blood on the Tracks? Um, A little bit. In, in, in just a playful way because um, um, it's sort of the same thing in, in the sense that if you think of the tracks of your evolution as a player uh, a lot of blood is shed for sure and and in playing this kind of music that 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 i wanted to for this record um sort of it's pretty hard it's a pretty pretty hard edge to it and um when you play a lot of it's just also just a fact that when you play this music and you're playing really high and really hard and really low and really hard, and you're just going all over the horn and giving it everything you got. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe half the time you'll go, oh, there's a nice little spot. <laughs> it just happens. You know, you split your lip ever so slightly, and you have to then move your lip over so you can play. It just happens to all of us because the sides of the reeds are, are a little bit sharp, and you can't sand them down or you'll lose the sound. So, you're actually, if, you know, you, you know, when you see Louis Armstrong and he's got that thing around his, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? But around his, or a trombone player, it's even worse. It's huge, right? It's all scabbed and, 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 uh, uh, grizzled and all that stuff. So that's how, you know, a great trumpet player, mm-hmm. right? When they lip like Louis, uh, because they're practicing constantly. And for a horn player, you know, there's nothing you can do. That little red flesh of your lower lip, there's you can't toughen it up. It won't scar and then keloid and be tougher or anything like that. It's just going to keep splitting. Then you got to, you know, go over to the other side if you want to keep practicing. And so you'll see if, you know, if we ever get to meet, you know, I just, if I'm on vacation, then, you know, for that little bit of time, uh, I don't have them. But I have two sort of rails on the bottom of my, uh, on my bottom lip. And, you know, they're just red, little red lines that will forever be there. And sometimes, you know, every once in a while they split. And so I remember once, <clears throat> the first time I 
I, when I was playing with Peter Gabriel, we had some time off and I sort of let myself get off, uh, off shape and, and didn't practice as much as I should. Cause I felt I didn't have the privacy and I'm, I can be a little bit shy about stuff like that. I don't want, want to play in a room with a bunch of other people. It's annoying. So I wasn't doing as much practicing as I should have. Man, I think I we flew to Amsterdam or something. And I mean, I'll never forget it. I, I just, I was wearing a white t-shirt and I looked down halfway through the show and it, it was just covered in blood. It's just the whole thing was just dripping with blood. And like everybody knew it but me because I was the only person that couldn't see it. So um, you learn a little bit over the years how to do a little more with less. That's a wonderful thing about Tina Turner. She knows how to do the most with the least. And, mm. and that, that is a lesson that I'll probably never learn. I get too excited. I've got too much nervous energy to really <laughs> play correctly, sing correctly. I, I just love it so much that it all goes out the window. Just, I just get into it and 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 I forget all the the tricks of the trade, you know what I mean? Like, right. That, you know, she'd have this thing where she'd, she'd look like she was dancing. And it was just this little move that she made. that was sort of like treading water. And that's where she could catch her breath. And, and any professional has to learn how to do that. And I've never learned how to do that. <laughs> to exactly save my what energy. talking about I, now. I just, I do exactly. too, I think. Yeah, of course. Of course, it's it's sort of a little shuffle off the buffalo, but it's mm-hmm. funky, and and so mm-hmm. and she'll lean forward a little bit, and she'll lean back, and she'll lean forward, and that's her, and she's got more people. And if you noticed after I quit, and Kenny wasn't around anymore, like it was three. First, it was two dancers, then it was three dancers, then it was you know twelve troops. Yeah, these big troops mm-hmm. of just and stuff. I'm so glad I wasn't around for that embarrassment. Now. That blood on the reed is out. Um, I am doing a one-man show with uh, Ableton Live and uh, uh, some TVs, some big TV screens and stuff. I've been making some movies. Cool. To- I'm familiar with Ableton. Are you? Yes. Yeah, I well, for a while I was a bed bedroom DJ for a while. I've I've experimented. Over the you years. used you used Ableton for DJing. It must have been more of a creative DJ thing. It wasn't a it wasn't a wedding DJ. No, 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 no. It was definitely more of I I made a couple of tracks here years ago. Oh, I get it. I get it. I tell you what, Ableton is deep, man. I'm 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 like taking lessons it's, because it's, I'm also running video off of Ableton, and it's pretty freaky to try to do that. But thank God I have a really good teacher. And that's the only thing that's hanging me up because the album is selling really well. Mm-hmm. I've had to really reorder and and they just sort of right away. And I'm so happy about that. But it caught me by surprise. And I'm only about 60% done with figuring out you know, how I'm going to make this happen. Because, I mean, quite truthfully, it's a terrible thing to say, but if I try to use a band, I'm just going to lose money. Gotcha. As a consequence, I really want to see if I can sort of actually make a couple of bucks. So I'm trying to keep things moving by playing lots of different instruments and getting people involved. Um, there's, there's 
one thing where I, I teach, I teach people how to, how to do the star. Uh, I don't know if you remember that scene where Jamie's doing all that dancing, that sort of Grateful Dead type dancing. Where she's walking through the crowd. <laughs> Jamie Gertz. Where she's kind of walking What's through the crowd. What's that again? No, when she gets no. where she's going and she's oh, yeah, watching yeah, yeah. Yes, me yes. and giving Michael the yeah. eye, she's sort of doing this Grateful Dead type of, right? That was her vibe, right? Gypsy, uh, Grateful Dead type person. So she's got these moves and I spliced them together. And I haven't done it with an audience yet, but Ableton obviously will let you do that because it'll let you loop and then go to an, another part when you want to just by pressing a foot pedal. And so... The idea of teaching uh, a, a room full of 20-somethings how to actually do the star <laughs> will be oh. so much fun. Well, first of all, if you decide to yeah. come down to Florida to play a gig, uh, particularly in Orlando, we will yes. do whatever we can to help you out. Um, Thank mm-hmm. you so much because you guys are really you, – you're really into into Yeah, the so there's the graphic side and then there's a there's yes. a – a place that's been actually two places in town that have been playing a lot of um, synth bands, and it's not like a typical '80s night. It's it's heavy synth. It's there's you know uh, okay. musicians. You know, Moon Dragon is one of the musicians from here. Oh man, that's wonderful. I hope you don't mind if I give you a call or not write you an email in about you know six weeks when I really yeah. nail this. Up. Um, I I I think we know a few of the the acts around here. Yeah, and um, I don't think it would be a problem to reach out to some of these guys and have some support. You know, if if you do, if you did decide that you wanted to come down here and play a show, I think we could help facilitate that. Oh, I would love that, especially down there because it's where we want to move. Hopefully, we can uh, we can make that happen soon. I just want to get out there in front of people and play. So the whiskey asked me to play wow. there. Uh, some people up. So maybe even the Edinburgh Festival, you know, some things that might be really fun for me, Toronto. So I just and and of course, if you guys know the Lost Boys, you know, G. Tom, have you ever interviewed mm-hmm. him? G. Tom Mack, uh, Gerard McMahon, who wrote Cry Little oh. Sister. Oh, yeah. And well, performed first it. Of all, love that song. Yeah. So so he and I have done a few gigs together. And that's a really mm-hmm. nice mix because. You know, he wrote that song. He's actually got the rights and is pretty well finished with a Lost Boys Broadway musical. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, he actually owns the rights to do it. And knowing him, he's a talented guy. Knowing him, you know, when you hear about a Broadway show, you just never think, you know, that you're that that it's ever going to happen. It's just too... Too much of a one in a million shot, you know. Mel Brooks do it, but on the other hand, <clears throat> I was once playing a gig at a yacht club, <clears throat> and this guy came over, and you know, I, I, I sort of recognized him, and he was turned out he was Bon Jovi's keyboard player. Oh, oh what's his name? And again? he to be a member. I can't remember, but he was he was sitting in with the band and blonde guy, right, with blonde curly hair, and he was. He was sitting in with the band, <clears throat> and he was hanging out with us just talking. David Bryan. And he said, yeah, I'm working on this Broadway show, right? He said, I'm working on this Broadway David show. David Bryan. What's his name? David Bryan. And he said, I'm working on this Broadway show. And, uh, you know, of course, you just go, oh, great. Good, good, good fucking luck, you know? And 
And he said, it's called Memphis. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it was one of the hugest, it was one of, the hugest it hits the, of that year. I think it won that 20 years. Yeah, multiple Tonys and everything. So you never know. If anybody can do it, Gerard can do it. But he calls himself G. Tom Mack for the last maybe 15 or Okay. You should reach out okay. to him. You know what I mean? He's easy to find. You can just write to him on his website. He's easy to find. Or awesome. Yeah. After 30-some years, what made you finally decide to put out an album? There, there's a guy who has a synth, uh, synthwave um, um, club in New mm-hmm. that we've play, both played a couple times uh, called um, QXTs. And, okay. and that's really our people. Like, seems like, like I said, like my grandkids' age with a lot of silverware in their face <laughs> that's that's my people yep. you know and and i swear I, I i just never thought that i would want to make a record and then go out and play that record and you know I, it was so much fun for me to put a whole extra three minutes of jamming into the end of i still believe oh that's fantastic i, I just I, it's just so much fun to just jump off a stage and just start running around and <laughs> people's faces. And, and, you know, I, I'm kind of, I don't know if you found out yet, but I'm kind of like a nervous person and I'm kind of have, I have stage fright and I have anxiety and I, about a lot of things and, and it, it, I'm not a very confident person. So the thought of putting my butt on the line, I mean, I do it all the time here, but it's just small gigs. But mm-hmm. myself on the line and then having it get out, and, you know, uh, all over YouTube, you know, that I uh, I don't know what, how a coronary or something that that is, is kind of scary to me. And once I got back some pictures of playing at this club in Newark called QXTs and to see these people who like they they would be my grandkids age, just these huge wide smiles like huge smiles on people that I should have nothing to do. They should have nothing to do with me. And I just think, man, if you're that lucky, you really have to try, you know, even no matter how scared you get or how, how difficult it is to do it, just you'll get used to it. You know, between you and me, I really like the record. It really is who I am, you know, like taking classics and twisting them around and then, Couple songs that I wrote myself, uh, Wiggle. I wrote myself, and but in, Wiggle's great. In that, thank you. I, I mm-hmm. you know, in that genre of sort of the generation before me, but then heavying it up a little bit. You know what I mean? In other words, everybody thinks about Rod Stewart as the seventies, but Rod Stewart thinks about Rod Stewart as the fifties because that's where he. Those are the people he loves, right? Sam, mm-hmm. and, you know, and and and, that, and those guys. So. Um, James Brown, and you know, in his early years. So, to me, she's. I even go back to the fifties, you know, because my sister was a a fifties person, and 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 my father was a forties person. So I just don't, I don't really view these things in these decades. Um, only after I became an older person do I say, um, with a certain snottiness that it's just gotten so corporate that I just don't even want to listen. So you mentioned Wiggle, and I'm looking at, like, we have some notes here and stuff. 
And uh, Jimmy very specifically wrote how much he loves the, the keys on Wiggle. Yes. And he had a, and he had a question about it. So I'm going to. Well, that's a synth wave kind of sound. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's. I was like, is this saxophone? Oh wait, no, that is that synth. <laughs> you know what? It's synth. Now the guitar solo on Tequila is is wind synth. Okay. So that's not a real guitar. That's that's me playing my wind synth. You could have fooled me. But the well, you know, one of my idols is Carlos Santana. I just try to get as close as I can with the synth. Ah. This tone. And I've got it. I've got it now wireless, so I can just go anywhere I want. It's just so so much fun for me. And and but that is um, just that is. Uh, I hate to admit it. It's a plug-in, but it's the Oberheim, the old Oberheim plug-in. Yeah, They're nice. extremely faithful to them. And yeah, it's just a straight up. I might have made a couple of tweaks to the patch, but mm-hmm. it's. Straight up keyboard, you know, one of those old sync touch things, those wah wah right. sounds. And um, I've just always, if you listen, the bass is kind of like that too on every single song. I just fell in love with this one synth bass sound, and I just, it's it's sort of the glue that holds the record together without really knowing it. Um, I I can see that. I can see that now playing it back through my head. Right. You know, every, there's a little mow, 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 mm-hmm. and and I tried to tuck it back because I knew I was using it on every single thing, and I and and because I just love it so much, I can't stand to not hear it. Sure. So, so and I guess that's the way it is with some of these like older synth sounds. Like we're getting to the age where these synth sounds are like really nostalgic, right? When I listen to like. Rick James or, you know what I mean? Some of these sounds are just, I might've even thought they were sort of cheesy at the time, but now that I realize how much a part of, of my chest they are, you know? Yeah. I, I just, this album at the time it came out, I, I just see you unintentionally kind of stepping through the crowd saying, okay, guys, step aside. You know, the, the grandmaster is here kind of deal. Well, um, if it sounds like I had that much confidence, it's a total lie. But I'm <laughs> doing my best. And this is the music I love to play live. And hey, the 31 years, 32 years since The Lost Boys, <laughs> been a trenches guy just trying to make people dance with my horn and with my... Uh, it makes me move. Um, the question I had for you uh, regarding this was, and you touched on it earlier about being trained, you know, at the Conservatory of Music. I read that you had auditioned with the keys and drums. That's not true. Okay. I, All right. I, there we go. That's, like, that's 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 Wikipedia, and that's a lie as well as the trip to Nepal. I, which somebody obviously just put there as a joke. Oh, because I remember as like, well. things go, things keep going in and out of my website for a while. You know, it's really funny because like, like people like you that I'm talking to, like you actually are viewing me as a human being. And it's like so wonderful for me, especially at my age, because, you know, there was a time 
and the country's changed so much that you could just accuse somebody of being gay. And that was a, like the put down of all put downs, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. No one does that anymore. It's stupid. But they, but, but that was sort of like all I ever got. Like, oh, who's this gay guy with the grease and shoving his hips around? I mean, doesn't he know that men are supposed to always be, you know, do strong movements and, you know, they're never supposed to, you know, be, you know, because I always felt like I wanted to always wanted to take it like one step too far. There's a there certainly is an element of comedy in, in what I love to do. You know what I mean? I, I, I think that it's 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 not like I didn't know that tie dyed purple and pink women's stretch jeans and a cod piece wasn't a, a little bit funny. You know what I mean? Like that wasn't that, <laughs> yeah. that was like a little just, you know, that I guess a lot of people have said it, but it's sort of like you try to put just enough wrong in it. And, and you know what I mean? You just if you go over the line, you're screwed. If you I don't, think there's a, I think there's a little bit of jealousy there. I remember when I saw it, I was like, this is the coolest person on the planet. Agreed. Like and I and Jamie and I talked about that before. You know, it's funny in the 90s and the early 2000s, all I ever got was you're gay, man. You're gay. Mm. And, and and that was supposed to be like a smart put down, you know, not gay. I have a wife, but it's, I, you know, I'd be proud to be gay. There's nothing, you know. Yeah. And, and your, your girlfriend's be, winning over me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, well, you know, it was just, it was just, I, I've never been a tough guy. I never want to be a tough guy. And so, mm -hmm. so the idea that I would make choices like that, or if you look at, I have to, uh, <laughs> I have to relate this story from earlier tonight that yeah. Greg does not know about yet. Uh -oh. uh, it called my mom just to, to check in. My mom's in Virginia I'm yeah. here in Orlando. So we talk, you know, a couple of times a week. Um, and she goes, honey, I saw your Facebook post about you talking to that man tonight. <laughs> and that man. I, so I posted, you know, a picture of you. Um, it's from your website. It's one of the, the photos that you'll sign personalized. Sure. Um, from the lost boys. And it, it, it almost kind of embarrassed me. She was like that man. I tell you what, the saxophone is a sexy instrument, but when you've got a sexy <laughs> man playing it like that, I'm just like, mom, mom, mom. So on behalf of the women of the Norfolk Police Department, uh, would I, I wanted – Would you do me a sure. favor and, yeah. and email me your, your mom's name and her address, please? Oh, goodness. I'm always at the post office from selling all the crap <laughs> that I sell. So I would love to uh, to acknowledge that compliment. Don't yeah. If it, That's fantastic. Oh, man. <laughs> I was wow. like, "Mom, stop!" <laughs> like, you're please, me out. mother, you're freaking me out. My mom is the same way, but it's with Jimmy Smith. Every time she talks about Jimmy Smith, I get embarrassed. Oh, I see. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and and yeah, and your mom's your mom's my your mom's are my age, right? Your mom's are my age. Uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. my mom's other person is yeah. Don Johnson because she was a big Miami Vice fan, which I believe you also have a part in. <laughs> oh, Crockett. I did, and you know, in 
for I put a spell on you. Um, oh, it's good. My it's good. wife, my wife told me that sounds just like Miami Vice. You've got to put your Miami Vice stuff up live and 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 do. A, so I cut together all my Uzi killing people and getting <laughs> by a car and all that stuff. And uh, oh, that's great. Yeah, actually, I, I, my notes about I put a spell on you and taking me to the river is that the vocals have a really like a nice gravelly like ZZ Top quality to them. And I love them. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I don't really have any choice. I'm a baritone and, and, and really rock and roll is for tenors. So I have the range of, you know, James Taylor and Dylan and, you know, those kind of people and uh, Huey Lewis and stuff like that. So I don't really have a choice. And, and, you know, any singer is going to tell you they wish they had a high voice. But at this point in my life, I'm sort of glad I don't sound like everyone. You know what I mean? Just a, a Lou Graham <laughs> off or a Michael Jackson knockoff at this point where they really do sound like, oh. like little boys or little girls. It's, 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 I just, I kind of, I used to love it when Ray Charles sang in falsetto and I love falsetto groups and stuff like that. But these are actual people who have just the tiniest little larynxes and, and sort of, you know, freaks of nature. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, those are the people I, I, you know, I admire it and I, and I, and, and I, I regret that I can't do that, but you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, I think there's a place in this world for bluesy shouters too. Everybody, you know, and it's been so much like every single person, right? I can't tell who's Bruno Mars and who's uh, the weekend. You know, and there's a lot of those. Guys. Yeah. Oh. I, I just, I just can't tell the difference. I can I can tell Bruno Mars is writing because it's witty. It's very witty, and mm -hmm. and, I, and I really like him. I like the retro aspect and that song. Um, um, the, perm. Uptown funk. No perm. Okay. You know the song perm. Mm -hmm. Throw some perm on too. Um, I, you know he's just a brilliant lyricist, and he's he's so funny, and I is what I always thought it should be, but. You know, I, I just can't tell the difference between these people. And there goes back to the corporate thing just cranks you through that meat grinder that you just can't do anything else. You're just, it's tighter than it's ever been. That meat grinder is set on a fucking ultra high. You know? Yeah. And they're squeezing you out if you don't have every single thing that everybody else has. That's it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I... I really dig these, you know, releases from some of these artists that we've talked about earlier hmm. because they're they're producing independently and through outlets like Bandcamp, you know, you can name your price for an album. It was never any thought of shopping for a label. It just doesn't make any sense when you're when you're every place that everybody else is. You know, I'm on Spotify just like Ariana Grande is, so it's, you know, if, if, if there's no excuses, you're every single place that everybody else is. Okay. Yeah. Constant TV exposure. What, you know? Oh, by the way, I was wondering, did you guys see, uh, Michelle Wolf? Yes. I watched that today. She is, I heard she got canceled. That's such a yeah, just yesterday got canceled. It, it yeah. Was, I saw your, it was so <laughs> fun to do that. I had such a ball. It reminded me of my Billy Crystal days. And they were all so nice. And to think that they said to me, 
oh man, we never thought of anybody else that we wanted to have do this than, than you. And, and you know, it just made me think. Cause then I look, I was looking, I, I watched it on YouTube and like all anybody, like she's brilliant. Did you hear her at the, at the present, uh, at the, um, uh, oh, uh press? She caused quite a stir. Oh, yeah, it was fantastic. Man. We are, we, we are so relatively apolitical because we right. both work for a school and it's our, our yeah, students listen and stuff like that. We are, we try to be sure. apolitical, but I have a very hard time when I see, uh, What's going on? Yeah, what's going on? When I see people uh, acting poorly, let's put it that way. So when I saw her, I was like, "Oh, this is wonderful." So great. I mean, I heard her. I heard her on the radio, and then I I, I must have spent a half hour in the car, you know, in front of the grocery store, just couldn't get out. And then to have her call me, that was just like such wonderful kismet, you know. And uh, so I'm I'm just I don't know. I'm just so grateful to still be able to talk to guys like you and and like know that people you know still care and that they would like to see me play and I I sort of feel like I I really owe it to them to to just try to give it my best well guys you might have noticed that Rob has been oddly silent throughout this entire time Uh, so he didn't embarrass us we had him tied up in our closet but for real, he is actually just now, he broke out of the closet, and he is now going to join us for this last portion of the conversation. So uh, welcome, Rob. Thank you. Thank you. I had to wrestle three greasy pigs. That was kind of weird, but... <laughs> I didn't get out, right? Okay. This is, this is Tim This is Tim Capello, and I'm saying that, Rob, I'm betting you're still covered in blood. <laughs> just, a just, little, just a little bit. I had to rush okay. home. I was... <laughs> He's covered in blood, and there's pedestrians stuck to the front of his truck. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll take care of him later. Don't worry. Okay. All right. You could just scrape it off when it dries. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The better way. That's the better way to do it. Anyway. So, so Rob, you have joined us for the very end portion of this interview. One of the questions, I, Jimmy, I think you wanted to ask this question about the um, the uh, Sergio Sack stuff. Yeah. So you spoke a little bit earlier about feeling like you were being laughed at, but now looking at it with the characterizations or I don't want to say parodies because that sounds bad, but with the sexy sax man or Sergio on SNL, I noticed that your, your store, your website says, uh, you know, sexy Sergio's website. Do you embrace those now? Well, is, that, you know, is that a form of flattery for you? Or? As, I, as I said before, now it really is. Because, I mean, like how many people can say they've been played by John Hamm, right? Yeah, that's true. Not that, just that, I can die happy. <laughs> but, you know, it was all where I was because I'd be going to these gigs, right? I'd be playing a jazz gig or I'd be playing like some blues or rock gig or something like that. with all mm-hmm. And like... People would be coming up to me, guys in the band would be coming up to me going like, uh, you didn't see Saturday Night Live, did you? And, and, and they'd be like really feeling sorry for me. So that was my, that was my only thing. And then I went on and I saw it and I thought it was really funny. Like they even did, I thought it was pretty funny when on the next Lost Boys, you know, those ones that just went to DVD? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. They had me playing like I was like 350 pounds. 
<laughs> I was just like a homeless guy on the street playing the saxophone. Right. Like, I thought that was funny. People, people would come to me and go, Oh, aren't you insulted by that? And I've never been insulted by that. You know, and a couple of people also set me straight. I mean, when you look at it, they sure made a lot of fun out of Michael Jackson. And this is one of the geniuses of the century of two centuries. Mm -hmm. And, and they also make, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but maybe my tastes are a little more pedestrian, but I'm just crazy about Barry. I just, I'm, I just, I just think he's one of the greatest rock and roll songwriters or pop songwriters that there ever was. And that sound and how many times they've reinvented themselves until they sort of, you know, how many times you can do it. And then they lost it. But that, that was a really impressive um, career that he had. And, you know, they made a lot of fun out of him. And they made a lot of fun out of Robin and their sound. And I love that sound. You know, I wasn't one of those kill disco guys because I, I felt that to me, disco was gamble and huff. And I don't think there are two bigger geniuses in the world than, than Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff. I mean, there's just, it's, it's just, to me, that's just fact. You know what I mean? When you, when you look and you see, um, that, you know, what say another genius like Tom Bell. Right. These people that had incredible skills, musical skills for arranging, composing um, and 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 all of these talents for songwriting. And, you know, right. Tom Bell had like the Dells and then he moved on to um, the, the stylistics and then he moved on to the spinners and he just wrote all these songs and they all had totally different feelings. And then you think. And then he retired and went to Seattle and became a farmer because that was it. He said, I've done it. That's it. But when you look at Gamble and Huff and then you just look at all of the acts that they did, right? All the songs that they wrote. I'm looking through their list right now. It's crazy. It's crazy. Two people to have that much talent, right? MFSB, the Jacksons. Um, uh, Teddy Pendergrass. Teddy Pendergrass. The wrote only you. Blue That's Rock. the first song on my album. Mm-hmm. You know, and and then to have the OJ's. She used to be my girl, but then have money. And these two guys wrote those two songs for the same group. And then you can find a million. You know, like um, um. Now I'm going back to my generation. Um, the Iceman. From the impressions, not Curtis Mayfield, but my wife, she's in the other. She's in the other one. I'm just, I'm just running a blank at the, at the Jerry Butler. So they had him. He had hits in the seventies. I mean, and it goes. And if you're looking at the way, it just goes on and on and on. What were these guys? These guys had like twelve Beatles, Beatle groups going on at the same time. And uh, to me, they were. Disco. I mean, they like they they crowned it disco, but they were so much more. And and that whole era is so fascinating to me, just because of of them. I think you know. I mean, they also you know they also had their enormous hits that maybe don't hold up so well, like Love Train. Oh, but probably only because we've heard it fifty million times at every wedding we've ever gone to. But you know, that's not their fault. You know, they didn't 
say, oh, now we'll write a piece of shit that it's going to be at everybody's wedding and everybody's going to form a conga line. That's not their fault. You know, they wrote a song. And it's hard to it's hard to embrace that song at this point. But, you know, when you I mean, just when when you look at it, it's crazy. And the level of sophistication of, of their music. So uh, that's, you know, to me, you know, the Bee Gees being influenced by them and then going on and 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 having that falsetto thing that they did and people make fun of and everything. So when people I'm sorry, I, that was a really convoluted way of like people, I would say, geez, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed by that. I think they're making, they're making fun of me on Saturday night. Well, I'm just, I'm just an, I'm, I'm just an obscure joke for a while. I was really convinced that I, I was just an obscure joke. You know what I mean? I was a punchline to, to, you know, to a bad joke. And so it wasn't until, you know, people like you started just saying like, you know, we'd like to talk to you. We really, we're really interested in, 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 you know, in, in, in what you've done and what you haven't done and, and what you think the business is like and, and, and treating me with respect that I really felt like, wow, <laughs> when, when did that happen? And I can tell you exactly when it happened. It happened four years ago, which is wild. Yeah. It happened exactly four years ago. And, and, and I've been, I've been with my wife for 22 years, but we're having our fourth anniversary. <laughs> next month so it's pretty right in line with when i got married that my luck changed and people for some reason started uh you know trying to wonder whether i had anything to say or to play you know anything to play i've wondered that too just because of the popularity of synthwave and stuff like that and in the back of my head there's part of me that thinks that the stuff that we love mm -hmm. like where you have a little bit of control over like we have a little bit of yes because we are buying it we are yes so you have a say we so. have nostalgia mm -hmm. power you know whether it's good or not you have the transformers coming back the ninja turtles the gi joe stuff lost boys like sure because that's stuff we grew up on it's the stuff we were like absolutely you know it's the stuff even for us like with lost boys like like i was a little too young to see it like three years technically younger than i was supposed to be seeing it mm -hmm. but so it seemed like something i was doing that was like dark and scary but, <laughs> but now i look back on it and be like this was really good. It's it holds up. I got to tell you, it really does hold. Up. Oh, it damn sure does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, we you know, we all watched it recently. Um, we we rewatched it recently, and and you know, Greg and I watched it twice, and it it mm -hmm. definitely holds up. Definitely holds up. It's still a good movie, mm -hmm. and we've I, said I got times that it's probably the best vampire movie ever made. Well, you know, I just God bless Joel Schumacher because he he's so. So hit, right? I, I, I like, I read up on him a little bit and he started out as like one of the factory people at, with Warhol, like in the original factory before Warhol got shot, oh. you know, when it was an open book there. So that sensibility is where he got his, you know what I mean? Where he cut his teeth <laughs> and then he brought that sensibility into like a, a, a larger forum, you know, a larger room. And I just think, you know, God bless that man. He's just like amazing. And have either of you, any, uh, any of the three of you ever been to Santa Cruz? I have. Yeah. And so I have not. I yeah. want yeah. to ask you if you feel as I do, which is when you go to Santa Cruz, you just picture the writer of that movie spending some time there and saying, 
because that is that town. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Just like a slacker, hippie town that's like sort of like the the ends of the ends of Haight Ashbury when it really got a little a little out of hand. When I, when I went there, I was driving north on the Pacific Coast Highway, I believe. And I remember mm-hmm. the road was split in a certain area and there was like an artist community type like flea market thing between the two parts of road. And it, all mm-hmm. of the little stalls were had like chain link fences. Come <clears throat> Yes. Yes. You know, absolutely. And there's so much about that town that if you, I just went there for a night and just walking around between blocking and shooting and like going to get some Mexican food at a little place and, and walking around the town and a little bit, I was like, this is the craziest place I've ever been to. And I felt like that that movie just jumped out of the town into the chest of uh, is it who wrote it? Joe Joe Esterhaus? Is that who wrote it? Who wrote it? I don't think so. There's actually no. two people, but I forget their names. Okay. So you'll you'll find out and you'll add them. And and you know, because they deserve credit. Because I really feel it's a very personal movie. Because it that it's it's that town, so it's the people who and, who just go there and and then they just get a vision. It was Jan of what that town and James Jeremias were the writers. No kidding. All right. Well, I don't know if they went there together or somebody just reworked it. You know, who was a, like a studio, and the other person was the person who brought it into Warner Brothers. But I'd love to know about that because. I, there's no way if you were a writer and you go through Santa Cruz, there's no way you're not going to write a short story, a little screenplay, or whatever it is about that town. You can't. Yeah. You can't. It's a, it's uh, interesting. And, and I have to say that I have to say that what because I, I I've been to Santa Cruz briefly. I didn't spend a lot of time there, but when I went there, the um, the actual song that they have playing in the movie as they're showing the people around town is completely appropriate for that town. Um, <laughs> the people are strange. Mm-hmm. Sure, of course. And, and as I was driving through the town, I, that song is going through my head, and I'm like, "Man, that song was so appropriate for this area." It, it can't not. I don't know what it's yeah. like now, but all I know is that when just a little time I spent there, and I, I had really not been given the whole script. I was just really given my scene, so didn't really know what it was, but the town made a huge impression on me. Just as like, what planet did I just land on? It was, you were back in the sixties, but it was like worn out and, and, and just sort of like the whole town was kind of homeless in a sense. (laughs) And everybody was just trying to get by on some alternative view of the world. And everybody was bouncing off each other. And there was violence there. I mean, I was really surprised, you know. I was down at the bottom of a hill, and this never happens to me. Some guy from like a really long way away must have been drunk out of his mind. Oh, I bet you think you're real big, huh? I bet you think you're real strong and you can beat somebody up. I bet. Come on. Come on. He was really far away from me. And nobody's ever done that to me. I just, there were so many strange people that I ran into in just the little time I was there that I, I was, I was absolutely dumbfounded. 
I'm going to have to move to Santa Cruz. <laughs> no, don't do it. Okay. <laughs> I, I keep, they asked me to come and play for the, uh, for the 25th anniversary, I believe it was, or the 20th anniversary. And I was, you know, uh, my hair was short and I was uh, 150 pounds and, you know, I hadn't been working out or anything like that. So I couldn't pull it off, but um, I would really love to be able to make a stop there and play for a screening or something like that. Hey, Santa Cruz, this is your chance. It would be wonderful. So, so maybe if I'm, you know, somebody asked me to play LA and then another person asked me to play Seattle. So maybe on my way driving or flying or whatever, I can make a stop. I would love that. Awesome. And I'm I, Imagine a yeah, screening of Lost Boys on the beach on like one of those inflatable things. And exactly. Then with the oh, they do it every year. Oh, do they? they do it every year um, on the anniversary of the release of the film. Have you kicked yeah, down the screen and walk out on the stage? Well, you know, I, I would love to perform the song before the movie starts. I, I would just love that. I would just love to be, to just, you know, to just out of the blue, just not, you know, just, just come out and, and, and they probably think it's the record and just walk out and play the tune before the movie starts. I would just love that. So that's, that's a goal of mine. If there's anybody out there in Santa Cruz that uh, can help me make that happen, I would just it would just be so wonderful to go there again. So in, in closing out here, um, you know, how would you just describe your legacy? Um, how would you like to be remembered? You know, just like I said, uh, I just the thing that sucked me back into really actually wanting to do this on every level, you know, put out a record and tour with the record and play places is that I would play someplace locally here, you know, with my people, you know, to, to lost boys, people, synthwave people, eight people. And, and by the way, they're in their twenties for the most part, right? They're, they're people that hang out at clubs. So just to get pictures back and look at these enormous smiles was just, it just made me just say, Oh man, just keep doing it. You know? Legacy doesn't mean anything to me. You know what I mean? There, there are so many people who play the saxophone better than I do. And there are so many people that sing better than I do. And while Stevie Wonder walks the earth, we should all be just crawling around. So, so I, it's it, legacy is, is, you know, it doesn't really cross my mind. It's sort of like, it's sort of like, can I, do I still have time? to just contribute some more of those smiles. You know what I mean? Just, 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 just get some more pictures back and realize that people don't know they're being photographed and they're just grinning in this crazy way. Like what the hell is grandpa doing up there? You know, it's just, it's just so wonderful. It really is. It makes me want to practice. It makes me want to create things and make little films and entertain people. And it, it makes me want to keep going and that's it because you know sort of getting i think i'll probably die with the horn in my mouth i don't know if anybody's anybody ever seen Emmy davis jr movie man called adam he keeps playing a higher note and a higher note and a higher note and then he just gets an aneurysm and he just drops on the floor that'd be a good there was a guitarist that died with playing guitar did he oh, oh getting shocked uh Johnny guitar. Johnny guitar is uh, was his name, but it was Johnny Watson, I think. Johnny guitar Watson. 
Yeah. Real mother for you. It's a real mother for you. That was Johnny Guitar Watson. Is it, I think, is he the one that died on, with the guitar? Did he die on stage? stage? Well, we'll have to figure that out. You'll have to, we'll have to all go look that up. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm a big Pearl Jam person. I think that they did a song about that situation, but. Oh, did they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then, of course, there were other things that were just so tragic, right? I mean, uh, it's to us, such Curtis Mayfield is such a hero to me, you know, and then and then to have that horrible thing happen, so prolific and 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 such an influence all around the world, and then Colonel to have Bruce something Hampton. like that. What's that? Colonel Bruce Hampton died while playing Who's on that? stage. Did he? Guitarist and respected elder statesman of the jam band community. Wow. What did he die of? Uh, it just says he collapsed on stage during the encore of his own birthday celebration. Whoa. Um, oh, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and you guys remember Tina Marie? Mm-hmm. She was the greatest singer. Oh, my God. And she was so, such a great musical force. Uh, uh, she was in a hotel and, uh, and the head... Um, like a big picture just fell on her head while she was sleeping in a hotel. I didn't know I mean, that. That was, that was actually one of my mom's favorite. Films. Oh, me too. Tina Marie, Minnie Ripperton, just she loved that. Oh, God. So sophisticated. And she, yeah, It was Johnny I'm, Guitar Watson, by the way. Um, and he 19, died on stage. Yep. In Yokohama, Japan. Uh, he was 61. Oh, I mean, holy yep. Moses. Wow. Well, that would be I, that would be a great way to go. That would be a wonderful way to go, right? I mean, to me, take me quick, quick, very quick. Yeah, if you're doing the oh, thing wow. you love, and yep. So I'm. There's no. There's no. Um, there's no choice for. I mean, I. I don't. I couldn't even know what I would. I'm not. I have no skills. I, I have no skills. I for, at first I thought, oh, I'll have a little vegetable garden. Exactly. You know what I mean? I got to keep playing. I don't even know if it's playing for old folks my age and, you know, so I can continue to play the songs I love or play for us. Um, and <laughs> yeah. you guys will be, you guys will be there too. Hell no, exactly. Yeah, it's like time marches on and, uh, yeah, yeah, bury me, definitely bury me with my, absolutely. Okay. Well, <laughs> we're, we're gonna, we are gonna go from awesome interview. And uh, Jimmy, since this is your hosting episode, why don't you explain the, the five question to our listeners and our guest and go ahead. Sure. So what we do at the end of every episode is we ask it, your top five list um, based on our conversation that we had. Mm-hmm. And our conversation this week has been very synth sax heavy. So yes, question that we have is what are your top five songs with sax solos or heavy sax portions? Got it. Now, now it's, it's kind of, as Greg said before in a previous episode, it's kind of my lot in life to go first. Okay. Do it, I baby. Can go ahead and do that. Yep. Do it. I'm going to do it. <laughs> so Don't tell my, me now because I'm really going to do this. My number five is going to be, the previously discussed uh, Miami Vice, a song called Crockett's Revenge, and that's by the Midnight. <laughs> I got I got to hear that. I haven't heard it. You've got to, yeah. You, okay. you got to check it out. Uh, my number, 
Number four sacks performance is uh, Walk on the Wild Side and Lou Reed. Ooh, the baritone solo. Mm-hmm. And was that was that like some like Al Cohn or Zoot Sims or somebody like that? Um, famous... Someone can do research do for me. All right, that was you. a fa- that was a very famous person who played that. But uh, both Al Cohn and Zoot Sims were tenor players. But one of them might have played it. I don't think it was Jerry Mulligan. But uh, Ronnie they, they, Ross. Ronnie Ross. Never heard of him. I have no idea who he is. Uh, yeah, actually, it says here, baritone saxophone solo played over the fade out of the songs performed by Ronnie Ross, who taught David Bowie to play the saxophone during Bowie's childhood. Ooh. Kidding. That's nice. interesting. It wow. is. And, and I'll get to that. Um, my number three is going to be Careless Whisper, George <laughs> Michael. I have to, I have to include that. My number two, sir, I apologize. You're not going to make my number one, but it's going to be I Still Believe by Timmy Capello. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. My number one, because it is. One of the the songs that I hold fondest in my heart um, is going to be Modern Love. Oh, wonderful. David Bowie. With Lenny Pickett playing. That is my top five song of all time. Sure. I agree. Thank you. It's wonderful. Great list. Except for, I don't know Crockett's Revenge. I'll have to hear that. I'm going to jump in here. Mine is probably more of the top 40 version. Okay. uh, I'm going to start off with Born to Run. Of course, um, Bruce Springsteen. Oh, so close. With uh, Clarence Clemens playing, Almost. of course. Yep. Yep. Uh, my number four, Modern Love, David Bowie. So there's, there's going to be some crossover here. Mm-hmm. I mentioned Billy Joel earlier, but Scenes from an Italian Restaurant. Okay. Love that song. Nice. Uh, number two, we're going to go with Baker Street. There's a lot of sex. Okay. The Jerry it Rafferty. absolutely is. And uh, I'm going to go with my number one as Careless Whisper by George Michael. Um, I can hear that song at anytime and it's when i when i'm not sure what i want to listen to i can put that on that's perfect <laughs> that, that was my number one that's awesome that's awesome and i guess i can go ahead and throw my five in um at, at number five um one that had a tendency to get stuck in my head from time to time is the uh, who can it be now um, oh okay great yeah i heard that Beautiful. today <laughs> yeah Beautiful. yeah and, and and the sax is pretty strong in that one um, absolutely my my number four actually is is going to be Edge of Glory, um, oh, and, and it's how and sweet. it's weird. It's weird because the to me this the sax solo in that song is almost like a complete change of pace from the actual song because um, the sax solo seems like it kind of like slows down a little bit from the actual yes. pace of the, of the song, but yes. it's so noticeable and it sticks out so much. When it, well, you when know, it, and it's not that much different. From what Clarence did on um, Dancing in the Dark. Okay. If you remember, the very end has Clarence playing out, right? And okay. the song is rocking. And Clarence is just playing so sweet, right? Yep. And sweet and pretty. Yep. So, you know what I mean? And there was every once, there was every once in a while, usually he had a lot of growl to his tone. And he played really hard. But sometimes he would just figure out that the best thing he could do was less. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, uh, um, Edge of Glory is a great example of that. 
Yeah. I love yeah. how Rob has mentioned um, both um, Lady Gaga and Twilight in the same episode. <laughs> yes, yes, I did, actually. Um, my number three is actually going to be another another song from a movie. Um, and I don't, I don't know that there's a strong sax solo, but the song is really driven by sax. Uh, mm-hmm. At least to me, I, I pick it up that way. Is uh, Back in Time from Back to the Future. Oh, yeah. That's huge. Um, yeah, it's got a really strong sax drive to it. And um, yeah, I, I, I think of that song when I think of the movie and stuff like that. So, Oh, I got to tell you, man, I've had to play that song on gigs. That was a bitch to write down. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, That's so funny. Fantastic. Um, my number two is actually, has already been mentioned. It's going to be Careless Whisper. Um, but my number one. <laughs> Is, What's is your number one, Rob? My, my number one, sir, you actually stole my number one spot because I love I love the song in the middle of The Lost Boys. And to me, it it's one of the iconic scenes of the movie is the concert with you up on stage singing and playing the sax. And it, it, when I think of The Lost Boys, I can't help but think of, of you and your song in the movie. Oh, that's, uh, so that's, that's nice got to be my number one. That is so sweet of you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. No problem at all. <laughs> so I it's guess very I'm laughing. Yep. You know what? I'm going to have to admit to you guys that I did not. I f- totally forgot about it. So I'm going off the top of my head. Uh, sometimes it. those are the best lists. Okay. So can I go for number one and work my way back? Sorry. Absolutely. My favorite, my favorite saxophone solo on a rock record that influenced me so much is that I actually, without knowing it, stole his last phrase on a song of Tina's from Mad Max called One of the Living. You guys should check out the video to One of the Living. And and where I stole that from was Junior Walker Urgent by... Uh, urgent, you know, uh, from uh, what's the name of the band? Lou Grant. What's uh, um, Farm? So that was that was um, that was such a brilliant solo, and it made such a huge impression on me. He's another guy that Junior Walker. I'm going to give him two. I'm going to give him my one and two um, because. What does it take to win your love? An old Motown song of Junior Walker's is yet another one that is just absolutely magnificent. Um, I'm going to go with, that's two. I'm going to go with number three would be King Curtis' Soul Serenade. That's a song that I had when I was a little boy, and I just thought that it was Brilliant. Um, and I'm going to go. See, I'm so much older than you guys that this stuff is coming out of left field. The Supremes, because you're talking about baritone solos. Like, I don't know who played it, but on the Supremes, where did our love go? There's just this perfectly constructed little baritone solo that the song would just not be the same without. And I'm going to say. Number five is going to be Captain Beefheart, Hair Pie, Bake Two. 
You had to get the Captain B for it in there. <laughs> what I a know, title. I love his, it's on Trout Mask. It's the first song on the third side of the vinyl. And of course, if it's on CD, it's just halfway through. And his, it starts out with a bunch of saxophone on it and it never lets up. And it's just instrumental. And I just, I, I, I couldn't not put Don Vliet on that, on my list. Whatever we touched was just absolutely golden to me, including his painting. You know, I think it's just so unbelievable. I, I was watching his Letterman interviews. And then to know that he changed music so much, right? Tom Waits wouldn't be Tom. Tom Waits is so brilliant, but he wouldn't be Tom Waits without Captain Beefheart. It just, it just wouldn't be. You know, you wouldn't have had Rain Dogs without Captain Beefheart. And, um, and to know that he went on with multiple sclerosis to make 20 times the bread he ever made as a musician, as a painter, and became a world-famous, world-respected painter. It just blows my mind. I don't. I don't even know how the guy just didn't just float right off the I just, earth. I just went to a, uh, a seminar on album art not too long ago, and they were talked about his album cover for that album, mm-hmm. the Trout Mask Which one? cover. Oh, what did they say? It's something about how, I, if I remember correctly, they talked about that they basically they basically stuck a fish on his face. It was a fish corpse. Like it really it wasn't like a mask. No, exactly. I remember hearing an interview with him, and he said, "What was it like to shoot that?" He yeah, because you know, under the lights, and it wasn't the first pictures they took. And, and somebody sent me a wonderful gif of him playing soprano sax through the mouth, the trout mouth. So you can find it online. Somebody sent it to me. Sir. It's even on my on my Facebook page. It, it is just the best. <laughs> Actually, what a trooper! Exactly. <laughs> For the record, Rob. Timmy Capello says GIF. <laughs> what am I supposed to say? We have that argument. What am I supposed to say? I, you're, you're saying it right. Well, I, I, what am I, I say it? Rob says it wrong. Say you said it right. Because it comes from graphics yeah. interchange, so it's oh, like no. a GIF. You got it right. I, I, don't, um, I don't call it a giraffe. <laughs> it will now. <laughs> no. I, I, don't, I don't hear any shame in your voice at all. I think you're going to stick to your, your jums. I, I, I will. I will. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, okay, so on that note, let's, let, let's close out here. Stick to your juns. That's stick the name your, of the episode. Juns, J-U-N-S. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's close it out here. First of all, we talked about your album. Where can fans get this album? Blood on the Read. Yeah. They can get Blood on the Read anywhere. They can get it on Spotify. They can get it on Google Play Music. They can get it on Pandora. They can get it on Amazon. They can get it anywhere in the world. But the only place that they can get a signed, personalized CD copy is from TimCapello.com. And when they go to TimCapello.com, it's going to show the album right at the top and it don't get scared that it says Sergio's Saxy Shop. <laughs> I'm, just a, I'm just a sucker for alliteration, and so I had to do that. So, um, but that's the only place you can get a personalized copy. Everywhere else, you can listen to it on YouTube for free if you want to listen to the commercials, or if you have uh, 
you know, Google Play Music or, or uh, YouTube Red, which I do and I just love. And um, so you can listen to it for free if you want. It's monetized. Don't worry about cheating me. Um, it's YouTube is monetized, so I'm going to get a little penny or two. I'm just going to let that every time play on every so lab, and our, on every computer in our lab and just let it play. Repeat. <laughs> I was I was planning on doing that too, but I think they'd probably find me out pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, guys, it has been such a real pleasure. I, I, I'm sure you have like I don't know how long your interviews are, but I'm sure I'm going to win the prize for the most <laughs> the most long winded person you've ever had on your show. I apologize for the no, no, no. job that is before you. I don't know. I'm, I'm elated that you took as long as you did, because that means I got to get on for at least a little bit of the interview. So, <laughs> Oh, I'm, and I'm so happy you did. And now it's time for yet your 15th shower to just exactly. get out last fingernail. <laughs> just get that person out from under your last fingernail right there. He's going to peel the oh, intestines man. from his chest. And and go to bed. (laughs) And go to bed. And aren't we all? (laughs) Okay, fellas, thank you so much. I had such a ball. Awesome. Thank you very much. Let me know when it comes out. So that was our 50th episode. And guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to Timmy Capello for joining us. We had a great time recording this interview, and we look forward to 50 more Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. For your listening pleasure, here is a few other snippets of conversation between the Gimme Five Guys and Tim Capello. You were known for your bodybuilding as well as the music in The Lost Boys. What was the bodybuilding world like in the 1980s? When, when, when I started bodybuilding, bodybuilding was kind of like a perversion. Like you just had the scum of society and there were no women ever, ever. We were above a plumbing supply store and these guys were so big and strong that, that, that they just would be doing these deadlifts and like making holes in the floor and trying to like cover them up with plywood. And we'd sometimes you'd just be seeing the guys downstairs in the plumbing supply store, like looking up at us, like, oh, <laughs> what do we get ourselves into? And no, you know, now every cop is buff, right? And every, it's sort of, you know, I mean, I'm a hippie as well as a, you know, I'm a social Democrat. So I'm, I, I really am a hippie in, in all those senses. And to, to think of my beloved, crazy, stupid, distort your body thing turning into a tough guy's, you know, sort of uh, neo-Nazi uh, uh, thing or something that, um, you know, is, is uh, a tough guy kind of thing. Because it just never was. I mean, we had guys coming in with, like, boom boxes and they put it like they get the bench loaded up and then they put on the boom box and it would be the same guy yelling come on man you can do it what the fuck is wrong <laughs> you can't do this I, you you gross me out you disgust me. i mean these were the kind and, and nobody mm-hmm. thought about it i would just my my training partner was 
the sweetest man. He had an erotic trapeze act with his brother. What? And, and, <laughs> and, and every once in a while, I just say, I'm supposed to train. Where, where is he? And they'd say, oh, he's in Rikers Island. Oh. You know, just like, you know, he punched a cop again. And, 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 and that was sort of what it was. That was just sort of the people that I, there was one guy, he, he would, he had this bleach blonde sort of surfer cut. He sort of looked like that guy that lived behind OJ. Oh, uh, Kato Kalen. Yes. Kato Kalen. That's what he looked like. And he was always wearing some homemade clothes that were very flowing and Jesus-like. And he would bring arms full of colored yarn to the gym. And he would go to like a pull-down machine and wrap himself. I don't know how he did it. I couldn't do it. He would literally tie himself like Jesus to the lap machine. Mm. And then when it must have been something sort of vaguely sexual, because as soon as he'd have himself tied to this thing, he'd start really shaking. And then we'd have to like tie him up and send him on his way back down. But that's what he did for. As well as Edward Albee was there too. So it was just, it was wacky. It really was wacky. Edward Albee was there every day. So it was just, I don't know. I always thought about it. You know what I mean? I never thought about it as a tough guy's thing where you could be strong and beat somebody up or something. Up next is a little bit of conversation about the movie Hearts of Fire, in which we talked a little bit about wardrobe and how it was like to film with Bob Dylan. Did you ever see Hearts of Fire with Bob Dylan? I have not. No. That, that's an 80s movie that's that's worth checking out. Um, just And you're in there, correct? I was in it. I played the drums and I would go to stripper outlets, you know, like where strippers bought their clothes. And I would try to find the craziest rhinestone shit to put on or <laughs> I could think of. And cause I didn't want to just keep it in one place. And, um, I just always seemed to be the way, I mean, this was a movie that is worth seeing simply for the fact that I believe it's in their Wikipedia page now, but I saw it. And I used to say it to people, and people thought I was, you know, being histrionic about it. But I, I it killed. It was the movie killed the director. I oh, mean, really? we watched him come in smiling and walking. And then he started walking with a cane. And then he started walking with a walker. And then he was in a wheelchair and Jeez. wrote us all letters of apology of how bad the movie was. And then he was dead. Wow. I mean, this was the guy that directed... Jagged Edge, and a couple of other very successful movies. And if you don't know rock and roll, you should never, ever try. It's the worst subject to ever try to make a movie about. But, you know, Dylan's in it, and it's kind of fun just for that. i have to look that up. And I, and I, re- I really enjoyed it. I re- and if you look, um, one of, like, the world's greatest actors played bass. We were the rhythm section. Um a guy named Mark Rylance, who's a really just like one of the world's great Shakespearean actors and was the first creative director of the Globe Theater in London and everything. And he loved Dylan so much that he thought, you know, they might just get on the movie and get to beat him and, and stuff like that. <laughs> but that's pretty funny. I am looking, I am adding this to my list. Good morning. Good afternoon. Oh, shit. <laughs>